0: Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, the podcast of thebattleground.eu. Boris Johnson has stepped down as head of the Conservative Party in the UK, although not as Prime Minister to this point. What's the British perspective on that?
1: Well, my first response was hurrah. And where I was, people were putting bets on when exactly he would go. I was a skeptic in that I believed Boris Johnson would hang on a lot longer. I thought he wanted it. I thought that he would be a lot more determined than Theresa May to hang on to the job. And that's a testament, his record of of politics going back 15 years, that he seemed determined to become PM. It seemed to be his dream to be, quote unquote, world king from a very young age. And prime minister of the UK was the only way he could get anywhere near that position. But it was also clear from his tenure that he's an extremely chaotic politician And he wasn't particularly invested in politics in terms of ideas or policies or values. And he was also painfully aware, from what we could tell, that he could make a lot more money in the private sector and that he wasn't used to living on the meagre salary of a prime minister. He's used to having multiple salaries for various roles, different newspapers, that kind of thing. And he was struggling to pay for expensive schools for his many children. And it's been a slow motion kind of downfall from January, really, when Hartigate was at its height for him. And then Ukraine came around at just the right time and saved him for several months. And then we just had scandal after scandal. We had Pinchagate, allegations of sexual misconduct thrown around and discussions about whether or not the prime minister knew about it. And then finally, Rishi Sunak resigned along with Sajid Javad in what was definitely a coordinated move. Then you add a staggered series of resignations. It was curiously reminiscent of the chicken coup against Corbyn in 2016, where the Labour right staggered, I can't even remember how many resignations, maybe 30 resignations over the course of a day. In Boris Johnson's case, it was 50 resignations or more because the people he appointed to replace those resigning ministers then resigned in protest. And yeah, in the end, it became untenable. He seems
0: like he's been kind of a dead man walking. I mean, at least viewed from across the Atlantic for some time now. Then he did the pincher thing. I mean, he seemed to nominate Groppo Baggins for some official position in the conservative party and then wouldn't walk away from it. Maybe he was taking an odd cue from Trump. I mean, one of the things that Trump learned and one of the decisive moments in American politics in the last 10 years, if not the last 50 years, is the Trump grab him by the pussy thing, which would have cost any other politician in the 20th century their political prospects. I mean, if we had the time, I could point out dozens of politicians in the United States who were forced to walk away for saying less grim things than that. And Trump really just decided... I don't care, I'm just going to brazen it out. And what he found out was that if I don't care, you don't care. If they don't care, no one cares. It's sort of odd in a way that Johnson wasn't willing to just try and brazen it out and kind of walk through it or at least walk away from it. I mean, this is an interesting thing about leadership, if you want to draw this kind of conclusion about it, that proper leadership is not so much about not making bad decisions, it's about gracefully walking away from the bad ones when you recognize that they are bad ones and the pincher thing was obviously a loser. And once the allegations came out about his sexual misconduct, immediately he should have been made to fall on his sword and Johnson should have just walked away at a high rate of speed, but he didn't. And that became the sort of moment for this palace coup to take place. And now it's a kind of interesting moment because it's not as if the Tories are in a worse political position than they have been for a while with this whole scandal plague period they've been going through. But... Labor is in a particularly bad place to try and take advantage of it because of Starmer and the fact that he doesn't really have any idea how he's gonna appeal to the traditional Labour constituencies. And I thought that a good segue here is in one of our previous podcasts you used the phrase centrist dads, which I recognized, but which other people listening to this podcast might not understand the significance of. So for people listening to us, who are the centrist dads and why are they important?
1: The centrist dads are a very broad category, but I would probably narrow it down to a certain kind of generation as well, like what you might call young old dads. You know, those dads you see who had their kids at a reasonable age, but suddenly start dressing like they're much older. And they think they're left wing because they're socially liberal, but actually their political views are way to the right because they came of age politically, either in like the age of Thatcher or... In the 90s, and their only horizon of hope and change is the third way, you know, and their only sense of progressive ideals, it's all kind of subsumed by things like the European Union. That's the only way that we could be progressive now is we're European. It is difficult to put a needle in it beyond that. But it is a reactionary group because they're heavily shaped in reaction to certain things, quite literally, whether it be the rise of Corbyn and the Labour left, they were deeply disturbed by that. They were deeply threatened by Brexit for obvious reasons. It threatened their sense of social liberalism, the sense that politics is over, history is over, and all we need now is good management, technocrats to run things. And everything will be fine if we just tweak the system slightly, everything will be fine. We'll all become, you know, middle-class liberals in the end, and climate change will be solved technologically or something. And the bad thing, whether it be Corbyn or Brexit, will be overcome. It'll go away in the end. They hope. And of course. These problems are always reduced to the politics of factual errors, the politics of truth, that kind of thing.
0: The term was very famously used a couple of years ago by Jeremy Gilbert in probably the most wide-ranging analysis of Labour's collapse in the 2019 elections. It was published on Open Democracy in five parts, it was called. It was the centrist dads who lost it, or that was, I guess, what the first part was called. But his point was that one of the major causes of Labour's problems was not so much a failure to appeal to traditional labor voters in the sort of red wall type constituencies, but in fact that a proportion of labor voters actually split off, and these were the centrist ads that he was sort of pointing to, and voted either for the Lib Dems or for the Greens or abstained. And these are people who are on the sort of labor right. They're attached to the kind of Blairite labor constituency which you know he points out in that piece i just reread those pieces the other day and one of the things he points out is that uh, this is well known that the parliamentary labor party is considerably to the right of the bulk of actual labor voters that it's absolutely taboo to be critical of the whole new labor period among people in the parliamentary labor party And so what you have is this constituency of right labor voters, right wing of the Labor Party voters, who are remainers by and large, who, as you were saying, think of themselves as progressive, but only in the sense of being European. And then you have Starmer, who is sort of the agent of that. I mean, this is the interesting thing about the book by Oliver Eagleton that I reviewed for The Battleground. He really points out that Starmer, I mean, Starmer has no strongly held political views, as far as I can tell, as far as most people can tell. But he did sort of mesh very well. I mean, he started out in the long, long ago, kind of on the left of the party and then shifted very pronouncedly to the right, especially when he was director of public prosecutions. He was one of these, we must sentence people who pick up a random ice cream cone in the middle of a riot to periods in jail, just to make sure that nobody makes that mistake again. He was very much a proponent of allowing the police to decide whether women's claims of having been sexually assaulted should actually be pursued. And then, uh, I mean, and this is the really shocking part of Eagleton's narrative, he pretty clearly, and and Eagleton's book, I I really recommend it to everybody. It's out on Verso. It's very well-researched. I mean, you really read the notes because he really did his homework. And it's pretty clear that what Starmer decided to do was, when the whole Brexit thing came around between 2017 and 2019, that he was going to court the labor right, against Corbyn, as part of his goal of achieving power in the party. And so, Corbyn was never really able to articulate a strong policy either way, and the Labour Party just came out looking wishy-washy. They were sort of neither fish nor fowl. So Corbyn pretty clearly wanted a version of the kind of Lexit. I mean, and I think reasonable minds have looked at that and said that 2019 was probably going to be a bad situation for Labour anyway, but the Lexit was probably the best solution. Remain was was a loser, but not deciding between Remain and Brexit was an absolute loser, and that's what it turned out to be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Remain campaigning organizations around that became de facto battering rams against the Corbyn project, and it's very revealing that most of them have been wound up very rapidly since then and have not re-emerged. Meanwhile, all of the calls for stopping Brexit at all costs via People's Vote, And then to rejoin the EU, once it became apparent that Brexit was probably a done deal, all of that has faded into political memory at this point, although there are still Remainers who want those things. It's all gone quiet since Corbyn left, which is very revealing. And Starmer, having pitched himself as the great Remainer, is now, quote, unquote, a pragmatist on Brexit, which is, again, very revealing.
0: Yeah, it seemed like he, from the very start, didn't have a principled position on it, although he wanted to seem as if he did. But that he was coquetting with the people's vote people and with the big donors on the right of the Labour Party. I mentioned in the review of Eagleton's book that he's very much like what we call in the United States a blue dog Democrat. That he's a guy who's so far on one end of the party that he might as well be in the other party. But really, I mean, this is the really interesting thing, I think, about Starmer. There's a point at which in the Eagleton book, Eagleton quotes someone in the Labour Party talking about Starmer's position on sort of right of the party and saying, well, there really is no constituency for that in this country, but there is. It's just already voting for the Liberal Democrats and it's never gonna get more than 10% of the popular vote, probably in our lifetimes. And this is the problem for Labour now, really. They've backed a guy who was supposed to be the kind of adult voice you know, the post-ideological voice or whatever after Corbyn, the claims that Corbyn was some sort of ideological hothead were always overblown. I mean, they were overblown in exactly the same way that the claims that he was some sort of anti-Semite were overblown. I mean, it was just weaponization of a certain kind of political claim that has a sort of kernel of validity. You don't want to be too far to the left of your electorate. Also, you don't want anti-Semites in the Labour Party, and Corbyn was clear about that. Every sane, sensible person, every decent human being doesn't want anti-Semites in the Labour Party or anywhere else, for that matter. But that got turned into a whole other thing uh, as a part of a political campaign against Corbyn, against his end of the Labour Party. And what you have now is Starmer at the head of a constituency in Labour, which is only likely to shrink, partly because they're not doing anything that other parties aren't doing, but they're also not really appealing to the more traditional Labour voters who are sort of to the left of, of where they are. And it's, it's hard to know where the party's going to go from here.
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to see a strategy emerging anytime soon because they've been so quiet. And all I've seen from the Labour Party are, in terms of like appeals to the traditional quote-unquote Labour vote in the North and the Midlands has been to start waving union flags at every turn and not talk about economic issues, don't talk about class. They just wave the flag and hope for the best, which is not going to cut it. They're just hoping that those voters, some of which stayed at home in 2019, some defected to the Tories. They're just hoping that they'll act differently in 2024, but it's not looking certain. Those voters may not vote Tory, but they may not vote Labour either. They may stay at home. And in that case, Starmer isn't going to rebuild the red wall, so-called, especially if there's a new fresh-faced Tory leader who's hit reset on everything that's been going on for the last three years. Starmer's best bet was for Boris to stay, actually. That would have strengthened his position much more for the next election. And he may have been able to at best, form some sort of coalition with the Lib Dems or the SNP, although he he keeps ruling both options out because, of course, he has no political nous at all. Yeah, this is one of the ironies that he was brought in. I
0: think he was supposed to have this kind of forensic quality, if you will, in the sense of having been a lawyer, having been a prosecutor, having been the director of public prosecutions. And this is a kind of an interesting thing. I recommend that people read the Jeremy Gilbert Series on opendemocracy.net for the reason that he makes a lot of really good points, but he also makes some points that I really think don't quite hold water. And one of them is that he puts a lot of weight on, devotes one of the five pieces to how Corbyn wasn't a working class hero. And in a sense, that's right. I mean, Corbyn was not the kind of guy who was going to give one of those win one for the Gipper type speeches and really get people charged up. He just wasn't that kind of guy. But he managed in 2017. And by the same token, I mean, it's not like Starmer is going to give fiery speeches. He doesn't really have anything he believes in. So it's hard to get fiery out over over what? Over nothing. But his problem is that he just doesn't have a way to get to those traditional labor voters and really charge up the base in the way that you have to. I mean, what you have to do, it seems to me, and and this is a well-established strategy in mass liberal democracies right now, is, I mean, what, what it is traditionally but I should say, like, Trump kind of changes this equation, but... Plant yourself sort of toward the middle and then get your base that's located sort of further out on the wing of your party to vote for you. I mean, look at Tony Blair is a perfect example. Tony Blair went to the unions, I think, very and said, I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm just not. But I'm better for you than the other guys, and that was a winner. Starmer, I just don't see how he can get there. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Gilbert makes a number of suggestions, and Owen Jones has kind of had some sort of talk along these lines too. That John McDonnell would have been a better figure. John McDonnell's a northerner, so he has sort of more down home. What we would call down home. I mean, this is why Bill Clinton, or one reason why Bill Clinton was seen as being very saleable to the electorate, is he has a southern accent I and mean, he's very charismatic in an odd way. But that's a whole other kettle of fish. None of those things apply to Starmer. None of those things apply to Corbyn. Pretty clearly, it would be better if you had a more compelling figure at the head of the party. Gilbert is a little at sea in terms of why John McDonald wasn't more forward, why it took them so long to get Ian Lavery out front with his northern accent. But I think that Eagleton really explains this especially in the case of McDonald, who was made a convert to the Starmer camp fairly early on in Starmer's machinations or whatever, and then just couldn't be mobilized in the way that the party needed to really make the case for, once again, and I say this, I said it before, but I think it's worth reemphasizing, the Lexit was the only winner or the least loser in 2019. And the fact that the Labour Party could not focus on that as a goal, is really indicative of the broader malaise that the party is swallowing, in right at this moment.
1: Oh yes, absolutely. And of course, Brexit was the key issue that sent Macdonald adrift from Corbynism at the time. It's an incredibly toxic issue uh, in Labour politics. And at that time, it's a tangent, but it's worth stressing, that the conditions were very much against victory in either case because once Boris had a deal, it was kind of done, I think, because the idea that we were going to reopen negotiations for a better deal is its a difficult pitch to the public, I think. But it, they would have lost a lot less seats. You know, you can't seriously claim that Labour lost 50 leave voting seats because we weren't remain enough. And I know this because I'm from Bolsover, which is one of the most intensely Brexity places in the country. You know, over 70% voted Leave. They had the most consistently Eurosceptic MP in Parliament. They still ousted him because they thought he was a Remainer because he wasn't Brexity enough even for them. That's how crazy things got in the end.
0: Yeah, they just couldn't articulate a position that was going to get either group. And I mean, this is another interesting thing about the Eagleton book. I really, I enjoyed reading it for the sort of insight that it gave into the guts of how the politics of the Labour Party was working and the sort of underlying relationship between Labour and the Tories in the period after the Brexit vote went. there's a period in 2019 when May's administration was sort of spiraling the bowl and they were just trying to get a deal done on any premises, whatever. And they went to the Labour Party and said, just tell us what you want in the deal and we'll do it. We're just going to roll over, expose our soft underbelly to you and let you just, you know, suggest whatever, and that's going to be okay. And that was the most challenging moment for Starmer because Starmer could not let that happen. Because if any kind of deal had been done prior to 2019, under May, that would have been a situation that Corbyn might not have turned in. I mean, he wasn't going to turn it into another 2017, but he wasn't going to turn it into what it turned out to be in 2019 either. I mean, it was a much, much less fraught situation for Corbyn, for the Labour Party more generally. And this is the really sinister, cynical part of Starmer's whole project in this period leading up to his taking control of the Labour Party. That he was very active in making sure a deal didn't happen because he knew that if it did, that was disadvantageous to his goal of becoming leader of the Labour Party, irrespective of what that might mean for the party more generally.
1: Yeah, and the centrist dads were very much his kind of constituency to some degree. And now you skip forward to today, we're facing a Tory leadership election, and Labour is going to be absent from politics from here on out, basically, because they're going to have to wait for scandal after scandal yet again to build up enough resentment in the country against the new leader and they're going to have a honeymoon period of a certain amount of time. God knows how long that could take, six months maybe. And there will be an election by 2024. They may even hold an election next year if the polling looks good and Labour will be caught completely off guard.
0: There's a sense in which Johnson should have been a gift to the Labour Party because he's a loose cannon. He has no real you know, political strongly held views other than Boris Johnson's own personal advantage. And they just were not in a position to take advantage of it. And now the situation has, in fact, gotten worse rather than better because now, I mean, say what you want about Rishi Sunak, probably less of a nutball. He's probably more of a technically competent politician then Johnson is the bar for that is so unbelievably low that you have to dig down with an earth mover to actually get to it. But that puts the Labour Party in a very difficult position because he's unlikely to make the kind of mistakes that were so characteristic of Johnson. I mean, Johnson was just asking for a strong Labour leader with a real vision about what Britain was going to be post-EU, and that just never materialized. And now that moment is gone. And what you're left with is Starmer, who, on the best account of things, really wants to be a liberal Democrat. Unfortunately, liberal Democrats, I mean, they're like the FDP in Germany. They're constantly sort of on the verge of extinction because they don't really have a constituency that is really related to a particular class fraction in a stable and and long-term sense. So the problem is that unless Starmer wises up and decides to make nice with the Scottish Nationalist Party, the Scottish Nationalist Party is pretty much decided that they're out of here. If I'm not mistaken, they are preparing for another referendum, and sooner or later it's going to happen. And that is a massive loser for Labour, because Scotland has always been a real bastion for the Labour Party, I mean, for, for the best part of a century.
1: Yeah, this is why an alliance of some kind with the SNP is the key to power for Labour, but the Labour establishment does not want to accept that, because they are the Unionist Party now, whereas the Tories are very much the English Nationalist Party. This is one of the great ironies of UK politics right now. Do you want me to have a prediction about the Tory outcome? Yeah, feel free.
0: I mean, I, I think this is the moment for it, if ever there was one.
1: <laughs> I think Sunak's moment may have passed. He was extremely well-placed last year, thanks to his COVID spending, let's say. People to watch would be Liz Truss, who is very popular with the members and has been working very hard to build up a base among Tory MPs. She's a kind of neo-Facherite figure. And may well come out on top on this. There's also a figure called like Penny Mordant, who's much less well known and will be seen as a safe pair of hands, effectively, as someone who's going to be reliable and not controversial, or at least in Tory terms, not controversial, which means extremely controversial, but yeah, perhaps more restrained than this trust. All
0: right, well, this seems like a good
1: grist for the battleground.eu office
0: pool on the outcome of the leadership election and the Tory party. But that's about what we've got time
1: for for this week. So thanks to everybody for listening and we'll be back in two weeks with more chat.